Good evening. Good to see you here this evening. Hope everybody's doing well. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this evening. Luke chapter 10. Looking forward to our study together. What would you do for a Klondike bar? It's a funny phrase uh, that's used in advertisement, but if you think about what would you do for, uh, people do some pretty crazy things, don't they? I mean, think about Black Friday. Think about the crazy things people do in order just to get a good deal on something, right? What would we be willing to go through? What would we be willing to endure to get that kind of a deal on something? What would we do in order to receive eternal life? What, would, what lengths would we go to? What extent would we push ourselves to if it was called for? Uh, if the requirement was to climb Mount Everest, would we climb Mount Everest? If the requirement was to give away everything we own, would we give away everything we own? If the requirement was our life, would we give our life to have eternal life? Would that be worth it? I think we all agree it would be worth it in the end because eternal life is eternal life. What's better than eternal life? So how shall I inherit eternal life? That's the question that Jesus gets asked in the story that we're going to be studying tonight. How shall I inherit eternal life? Uh, If you're there with me in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked that question to Jesus. So aren't we interested to know what's Jesus going to say in response to this man? Because the same applies to us. What are we going to do to inherit eternal life? But it's interesting because this is a lawyer who's asking Jesus the question. And the text tells us that he's asking him this, putting him to the test. What does that mean? Why is this a test for Jesus? And what exactly is a lawyer? You know, we think of lawyer today, we think of someone in the court system, a prosecutor, a defender, uh, you know, to try to settle something in order to create justice. But that wasn't really what they had in those days. In fact, you've got a different translation. It might say an expert in the law. Okay, So this is a Jew who was experienced in what the law says. He knows the law. He knows what, it, what it's all about. And so Jesus, instead of answering his question, asks him a question himself. Uh, verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? <laughs> You're the expert. You tell me what the law says. And the man responds with, uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Great. There's the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do it. And you will live. That's an easy test, isn't it? Jesus is asked a question, and hey, I'm going to pass this test. You tell me the answer. <laughs> Sounds good. But, but is it that the man is trying to get Jesus to say something other than what the law says? I mean, this is well known. 
This is a common teaching. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Deuteronomy. This is Leviticus. This is a common teaching of the day. This sums up all of the law. In order to do the law, you must do these two things. And everything else is wrapped up in these two things. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, you're going to be doing the things in the law that are details about that. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to do those things toward your neighbor. So this is, is kind of a weird test, isn't it? But it turns out that's not the test. That's the introduction to the test. You keep reading. After Jesus answer, answers the question, uh, well, says He's answered it correctly. Verse 29, But He, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify Himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Ah, here's the real test for Jesus. And who is my neighbor? He desires for Jesus to provide him his interpretation of the neighbor. Who is his neighbor? Notice the text says he's desiring to justify himself. This is Luke's little way of hinting us to what's really going on in the text. Luke told us at the first, this is a test. He's testing Jesus. And now he's telling us he's trying to justify himself. Why is he justifying himself? Do lawyers love their neighbor? Do the Pharisees? (laughs) We just saw earlier this morning... The Pharisees struggle with loving their neighbor, right? Simon really struggled with loving the sinful woman. He was able to discount the sinful woman because she's sinful. Therefore, she's no longer my neighbor. They have a way of setting aside people and saying, well, they're not really my neighbor because they have fallen into this category. They are sinners. They are enemies. And so he asks... Who is my neighbor? It's interesting that he asked this question, right? This is a big contention with Jesus and the Pharisees and all the religious leaders of the the day. Jesus is is teaching and proclaiming, even in chapter 6, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Provide for them. Don't judge them, but help them along the way. And the Pharisees are saying, no, we separate ourselves from them. We don't want to be near them. So, whenever we get to chapter 10, we see Jesus send out 72 disciples into the the region where He's about to go. And they're casting out demons and they're doing miracles. And these disciples are tax collectors, they're sinners, they're prostitutes, but they're disciples of Jesus. And when they come back to Jesus after doing that, Jesus finds them rejoicing over what God has done through them. And He says to them in verse 20, Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus tells these 72 disciples, your names are written in heaven, and then a lawyer comes along saying, 
Okay, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Okay, we, we start to see this test. We start to understand a little bit better why he is asking this question. Who is my neighbor? Because in the lawyer's point of view, these people that Jesus accepts don't qualify to, to inherit eternal life. When we really think about this, it's interesting because how could Jesus accept these people who have obviously not kept these two commands, right? Did they love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind? Well, why have they lived such a sinful life? Tax collectors had, had taken advantage of people in the past, right? They had, they had taken their money and lied to them and told them they needed to pay more taxes than the government really required to get wealthy off of them. So we see the reason behind the test. How does Jesus respond? How is Jesus going to help the situation? Well, we're looking at parables, right? Here again, Jesus responds with a parable. He doesn't open up this to an argument about who is a sinner and who is not a sinner. Instead, He tells the man a parable about another man who falls among thieves on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay? So the parable about a man who falls among thieves on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's about a 17-mile journey. Okay? Here's a, a picture from Google Maps of the terrain that he would be crossing if you go from Jerusalem all the way up to Jericho. You see how all of this is looking kind of like crumpled up paper, right? That's mountainous terrain, right? It's a 3,500 foot drop. And along the way is all these little ravines and all these little foothills going down the mountains. Uh, it's interesting, along the way, Google Maps is amazing, right? Uh, along the way, you have people who have stopped to take pictures and they've uploaded it to Google Maps with the GPS location. So this is kind of some trails that you can see along the way going through the ravines. And you can see how it kind of zigzags going through all of these, uh, all of this mountainous terrain. And I'm not saying this is where the road really was. We don't know where the road, it's a parable. Uh, but if this is an idea of what it looks like as you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is the kind of terrain that you're going through. So this is known to be a dangerous road. This is known to be a place where thieves could easily hide out in order to rob people. And this, this man is fallen upon by thieves and they, they beat him and they strip him and they rob him of everything he has. And he's stranded somewhere along that 17 mile road. No cell phone. <laughs> It's not a real busy highway where cars are flying, okay? That's going to be a little bit more than a day's journey to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it, you know, it could be done in a day with animal, but walking, it's going to be tough. And he's stuck, and the text says that he's beaten nearly to death, half dead. So I want us to just imagine being in that situation. What would that feel like? To be beaten half to death here of all places. Knowing that 
if someone comes, unless someone comes, you will surely die. Now imagine you're sitting there, you're, you're laying there in pain, going in and out of consciousness maybe, and you're looking on the road and you see a figure. You see somebody who's walking towards you and you get a little bit of hope. And as they get closer, you recognize them. It's a priest. Well, this is a religious man. This is a man who who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. This is a man who worships and serves God. This is a man who knows that he should be loving his neighbors himself. So you call out to the priest. And he stops because he sees you. But wait, where's he going? He goes down the ravine. He goes across. He goes up to the other side. And he walks away to get away from you. You're yelling at him and he walks faster. Well, that's not very loving, is it? Well, that that was your hope right there. How crushed would you feel to see that? Oh, but there's somebody else coming and, and he's a Levite. This is a teacher of the law. This is someone who knows what the law says. He teaches people, love your neighbor as yourself. Surely he will come and he will help me. Oh, he's turning and going across too. There's no hope. But then another man comes. And, and you can see him. He's a Samaritan. Okay, there's no hope, right? This is a Samaritan. This is an enemy. There's no way he's going to help me. Uh, he's, he's the worst of the worst. I mean, I, I've spent my youth praying that God not forgive the Samaritan, right? I've, I've spat upon the Samaritans who've come near me. There's no way he's going to help me. But he comes. He comes right up to me. He takes his oil and his wine. And he, he treats my wounds. And he gently lifts me up and he puts me on his animal. And he walks while I ride to an inn. He, he unloads me. He takes me into the inn. He pays for my stay there. He treats me like he would want to be treated. And shows me love that I might not have even shown him. And whenever he has to leave, he pays to make sure I'm taken care of until I can be fully restored of my health. Isn't this a jarring parable? A jarring picture for us to see how the ones who are religious leaders who are proclaiming their love for God and their love for their neighbor, their love for everyone are failing miserably at that. They're supposed to be the examples for everyone else to follow. Now, we could easily come up with reasons. They can't see who you are. You're you're maybe all mangled or you've been stripped, so there's no way to identify you, whether or not you're a Samaritan, that they don't want to help. Uh, Nobody's around to see this help, so... It doesn't really benefit them at all. Uh, and, and plus, they've got an important mission that they're on. They're really focused on getting to that town so that they can offer sacrifice, so they can do things that are spiritual, that are focused on worship to God. And if they touch you and you're, you, you're a sinner, then they might be unclean. 
I mean, obviously you're a sinner, right? You're the one who's beaten on the side of the road. You're getting what you deserve. We can kind of see how these things could easily be justified by those who are religious leaders. Well, Jesus tells this story. And then in verse 36, He says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And the man answered, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Jesus answers the man who asked the question, Who is my neighbor? with this parable. And then at the end he says, Which one of these was a neighbor to the man? And the man won't even say the name Samaritan. He says, I suppose the one who gave him mercy was the one who was a neighbor to him. And he says, you go and do likewise. Jesus gives this parable in order to give a message, a very strong message to this man that his question is bad. Who is my neighbor is a ridiculous question. It doesn't matter what someone looks like. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter where you find them along the way. Everyone is our neighbor. That's implied in the word neighbor. (laughs) It's included. Anyone and everyone is a neighbor when they are near us. And the man is asking a question intending to exclude people. When obviously the command that was given in Leviticus is intended to include everyone. The intention is to show love to all. Especially in their hour of need. Even if they're our enemy and they're in need. God desires for us to help them. He made that clear in the Old Testament. And He makes it very clear in the New So, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean according to this text? This means that God wants more than religious observance. Religious observance is good. Gathering together to worship and praise God is excellent. It's invigorating. It's reminding us of our hope. It's reminding us of what we're here for. It's encouraging and uplifting as we sing songs to one another. It's edifying as we learn about God and we learn about His Word. But God doesn't just want us to love Him. He also wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, And this text helps us to understand what that means. It's, it's more than just saying it, right? I love God with all my heart and I love my neighbor as myself. It sounds good. It's easy to say. But this text shows us it means more than just saying it. These religious leaders would easily just say these words. 
But when one comes along who is a Samaritan who is in need, it becomes difficult to show the belief that I must do these things in order to inherit eternal life. Notice, the one who showed him mercy is a Samaritan. Jesus tells this whole story to shame the lawyer, to shame the religious leaders, because they're saying they love their neighbor, but they've made a way to exclude neighbors so that they only show love to the neighbors they want to show love toward. That is the the failure of the lawyer in this text. So what about us? What keeps us from loving our neighbor? Do we have this problem? Is this an issue for us? Do we ever think, well, yeah, but that's not really my neighbor. (laughs) That person's excluded because of the company that they keep. That person's excluded because of the way they live their life. That person's excluded for X, Y, and Z. He's not really my neighbor. Oh, and by the way, it might be dangerous. You think about the, 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 the priest who is going to walk up. Well, that could be a trap. A Samaritan has just been robbed and beaten. I could be walking into that situation as well. Well, is that our reason for not loving our neighbor? Are we afraid of, of the dangers that lie ahead of us? The news fills us full of this fear that, that prevents us from loving our neighbor as ourself. And like the, the Samaritan, we have to overcome that fear and, and be risking things. Or do we say, I'm too busy. There's somebody in need, but I've got all this other stuff that I've got to get done. And I've got to show love to other people right now. So I can't help this person. Even though they're in a greater need, I've got these obligations in my life. And are we tempted? Are we not tempted to think, well, no one will ever know if I really don't help this person. No one will ever know if I just keep walking Or if I just keep driving, are we not tempted to do that? Is that not an easy temptation for us to follow? I want you to imagine an elder or a preacher making these excuses for not acting in love towards someone who they see who is in obvious need of of some serious help. Imagine them just... Driving right by or walking right by someone who's bleeding out and and not caring. Having this cold heart towards somebody who is in serious need. That's the picture Jesus gives us here. That someone who is greatly respected, who is preaching love your neighbor as yourself, is not doing it. In order to say, we don't need to be like that. We can't let ourselves be like that. What does God expect from us? Doesn't He expect us to show compassion toward those who are around us? 
The Samaritans saw another human being in serious need. And he was willing to go up to that person to help them because he had compassion for them. He wasn't cold-hearted toward them and thinking, well, I don't know why they got themselves into that situation. But they need to help themselves or they need to, to find some way out of it or somebody else needs to help them because I, I don't care that much. God expects us To do like the Samaritan. To do for others what we would want done for us. As you're lying there in the road, what do you wish someone would do for you? The message of this parable is, put yourself in the other person's shoes and do for them what you would desire done for you. What goes above and beyond in service. This Samaritan gave what he had. He gave his own oil. He gave his own wine. He gave his own donkey. He gave his own money. He gave because he had compassion. Because he wasn't self-focused. God expects us to give up our stuff in order to serve people who are in need around us. When, when we're given the opportunity to help someone and we have stuff to give, He expects us to give it. He expects us to show love toward that person. To give up our own time to help somebody. You know, we're so busy, we value our time so much, but God wants us to give it up for other people. To show love for them. And God even wants us to give up our safety. This Samaritan gave up his safety. He risked his safety to to approach a man who had been beaten, who had been robbed. There's obviously thieves in the area. He gave it up. It's easy for us to think, wouldn't God want me to be safe? Wouldn't God want me to do what preserves my life so I can serve Him for longer? But God doesn't promise us safety. God promises us security. He wants us to be willing to give up our safety in order to receive eternal security. So we have to put on a different mindset about our lives and and what we're here for. So how can we do this? How can we prove to be a neighbor to those around us? Isn't this hard for us to do? It's really hard when when things are are rolling and and we've got all these plans and everything is, is, is going great to just stop and see someone in need and help them. Imagine running into a dangerous situation wanting to help someone. Can you ever picture yourself doing that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We might want to think that we'll do that, right? Oh yeah, I love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to do that if that opportunity ever comes. But imagine what that would really be like. 
the fears you would go through, the anxiety, the, the struggle. I've got a wife and kids at home. I've got, I've got all these responsibilities. I've got all these things that, that, that are weighing on me that I need to take care of. But you know what's really sad? Running into a dangerous situation would be really hard. But don't we just struggle with situations that are an inconvenience to us? You know, running into that dangerous situation, that's hard. But helping somebody on the side of the road who's broke down and and needs a cell phone or needs something, that's not even that hard. But we struggle to do that sometimes. It was about a year ago, and it was the heat of July in Alabama, which is pretty close to here, pretty hot. I'm driving home from work. It's a Tuesday afternoon. We had church service on Tuesday uh, evenings at 6. It's about 4.30 or so. I've got kids and wife waiting for me. I've got a Bible class to teach. I'm driving along on the interstate. I cross a bridge and I see a truck on the side of the road. And there's an elderly man who is sat down on the, on the back of his truck. And you can tell he's just wringing wet. And he's got a spare tire there, and he's got his tools there, and you can tell he's just exhausted and he he doesn't know what to do. And I'm sitting there, driving along with all these plans of what I've got to do, and I'm thinking, I ain't got time for this. I ain't got time for this. I ain't got time for this. What am I doing? You know, I, I was like, what, what is going on in my mind that I would look past the person who is in need of help? I ain't got time for this. I've got to hurry. I've got to get home. I've got to get ready for Bible class and I've got to eat and I've got to feed and I've got to go to Bible class. It's a 45 minute drive. It, it's going to take some time. I'll be late. They're relying on me. I'm not showing love for them. If I'm late, well... Turn the car on the interstate, do my U-turn, about like a half mile, mile down the road, do my U-turn, come back, and by the time I get back there, there's two other cars there. I'm like, wow. Alright, so guy's good, uh, two cars are there, there's a big burly guy there about to help him, I'm like, okay, well, I'm good, we're good. It's easy, right? It's easy to just think... I don't have time for that. There's too much other stuff going on in my life. I can't do this right now. It's even easy for us to be prejudiced on some level uh, to anybody. Uh, we're, we're about to go up to my parents' house up in Tennessee, and we're at a gas station, and there's a little you know punk kid. I say punk kid, and he's like 20, 20 or so, and that's not that much younger than me, but... It seems like a punk kid. He's driving a little Honda Prelude, you know, and and uh, it's got all these little uh, modifications to it and all this stuff. Man, he can't get that thing to start. I used to have a Honda Prelude, but I can't work on cars. He can't get that thing to start, and I'm just like filling up my car with gas, and he's doing everything he knows to do, and I'm like, hmm, all right, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Uh, I don't really want to help him, but and I don't even know that I can help him, right? I'm not a mechanic. I learned a little, but I don't know much. But I go over to try to help the guy. 
and he's tweaking stuff, and I'm trying to start it, and I'm tweaking stuff, and he's trying to start it, and somehow we get this thing cranked, and I have no idea how. And I'm like, dude, you need to go to an auto parts store right now. He's like, I'm going to South Alabama, and if I can just make it there, and I'll be good. I was like, you're not going to make it to South Alabama. <laughs> but I think he tried anyway, and I was like, all right, well, best of luck to you. I tried. But it's easy. It's easy to just say, well, he's not like me. And he, he deserves whatever he's getting or he's getting this because he wasn't taking good care of his vehicle or he didn't do this or that and he wasn't smart and all this kind of stuff and ex- excusing ourselves from helping people. It's so easy for us to do. But when we're doing that, we're doing what the lawyer's doing. We're doing what the Pharisees do. We're doing what the the Levites do. We're justifying our disobedience. Remember at the first I asked the question, what would you do to inherit eternal life? We'd be willing to give up our lives for eternal life. We'd be willing to give up our, our, our possessions. We'd be willing to give up all this stuff. But when the opportunity comes for us to show love to our neighbor, the second greatest command that is required to inherit eternal life, oh, well, that's, that's a little too much for me right now. Maybe I'll get around to it tomorrow. It's easy for us to do this, to justify our disobedience but we're failing. And we're missing out on the most important thing that we could possibly receive in this life. The promise of eternal life when this life is over. Aren't we glad that Jesus was inconvenienced for us? That He took the time to come down from heaven to serve us and to allow Himself to suffer the loss of everything. To redeem us. Aren't we glad He showed such compassion that He's willing to give up His safety in order to provide us with eternal security? That's what God was willing to do for us. And whenever we obey, whenever we glorify God by loving our neighbor as ourselves. God is able to use that to glorify His name. He's able to use that to spread the truth of the gospel. Just like Jesus shone as a light by sacrificing Himself on that cross, we can shine as lights on this earth by giving up our time, by giving up our possessions, by giving up whatever it is that we can give up in order to serve our neighbor as ourselves. This world is very cruel. And it's becoming more and more cruel with time. With people justifying hating their enemies and only loving those who are like them. We can easily fall into this as well. We have to be on guard against this. We have to show compassion toward others. That's what we're called to do. To be living sacrifices in service to the world. Are you my neighbor? Yeah, everybody's my neighbor. And we're here to serve each other and serve God faithfully. If you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel and you know what you need to do, 
Uh, This is a time for you to obey that gospel, to receive the love of God, and to put on Christ in obedience. If you know what you need to do, please come as we stand and